may be seated. And good morning. Good morning. And happy new year. It is upon us, is it not? We stand, as we often do at this time, on the edge of the year that has passed and on the fringe of the coming year. We sometimes wonder, what will it bring forth? Well, we don't even know what the next day will bring forth, let alone the next 365. But I am certain of one thing, and that is this, that it, in at least one respect, 2019 will be a much better year than 2018. Why? No elections. Yeah. No elections. <laughs> Amen. Everyone, I think every one of us can agree on that, but that's, that's a good thing for us. But they'll be, they'll be back, of course. Well, in ancient Israel of the 8th century B.C., the days of the prophet Isaiah, uh, they were somewhat like our nation. We hear a lot today about how divided we are. You can hardly watch the news without hearing words to that effect. God's covenant people were also, in fact, divided. The northern ten tribes were known still as Israel, and the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin were known as the kingdom of Judah. Now, this, of course, weakened both nations, leaving them even more vulnerable before their enemies. I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. But the prophet Isaiah, in our reading this morning, reassures them that there will be a restoration, that eventually the reunification of their nature will be a reality. And he speaks of a king, a new government that will be upon this king's shoulders. For to us, a child, notice, is born, not will be born, but is born. A son is given, he says in verse 6 of chapter 9, even though he would not be born for another 700 or so years. Thus the angels who visit the shepherds on that first Christmas night at last could say to them, for to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Isaiah calls him several things, doesn't he? Wonderful counselor. Counselors were not as we envision them today, guidance counselors, marriage counselors, that sort of thing. Rather, they were advisors who often served kings and queens and heads of state. Uh, this coming king will have no need for that because he himself will fill those who hear him with a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. And was that not true of our Lord Jesus? Everyone, even often his enemies, were in, had a sense of awe. They marveled at his wisdom and the things he said, the words that he spoke. For he was and is, in the words of John Calvin, the reformer, endowed with absolute wisdom. He's also called the mighty God, which means that he is the supreme authority. He is not only sovereign, though, but he also has the power, the wherewithal, to bring about the end of his enemies, the destruction of his enemies, which are, by the way, our enemies as well, namely Satan, sin, death, all the things that make life here on this planet so difficult, all of which our Lord defeated at the cross. We are his little ones. We are indeed weak, as the children's song says, but thankfully, he is strong. And he is not just strong in some general way, he is strong on our behalf. He is the everlasting father, meaning among other things, he is the undisputed king of the universe. His kingdom was inaugurated at Advent, at, at his birth, and it continues today and will continue on forever. And finally, he is referred to as the Prince of Peace. Again, I concur with John Calvin, who says this about peace. He says, of all the blessings, not one is better or more desirable than peace. 
meaning that all who submit to the dominion of Christ will lead a quiet and blessed life in obedience to him. That life without this king is indeed restless and miserable. Now, how is all this possible? How does it come about? Well, not through our own efforts. That's for certain. Rather, that's what Isaiah calls the zeal of the Lord. He says the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That, that phrase, Lord of hosts, means the Lord of armies, the powerful God. The, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, zeal is, is not a word we use often in our, in our vocabulary these days, but it simply means energy or passion, enthusiasm. Oddly enough, in the case of God, it's closely linked with the concept of God's jealousy. And again, it seems strange to us to think of jealousy as belonging to God. That's generally not looked at as a good thing. Uh, it's not generally viewed as a good quality. And yet, God is often said to be a jealous God. One writer puts it this way, this zeal or jealousy of God arises in his deep and unchangeable knowledge that he is the only God and in his deep and unchangeable love for us. As such, it is expressed in his acts of redemption, which we read about in our other readings this morning. In particular, his sending his only son to redeem us from our allegiance to other gods. And is that not the first commandment? No other gods before me. And as such, it is also expressed in his acts of judgment, in which he minimizes, curtails, and will ultimately remove all that threatens and undermines both his glory and our good. And so my challenge to you this morning as we stand on the edge of a new year is that we determine right now, right here, to live each day of the coming year with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord of hosts, in the God of Israel. Now, this is not going to be some locker room at halftime pep talk. I'm not going to do that to you this morning, not at all. The word confidence comes from the Latin con, which means with, and fide, or faith. So, with faith. So the idea behind confidence is full and complete trust, complete reliance. One who is a confidant. If you have a confidant, that's someone you trust. Now, to further clarify, I'm not speaking this morning of, uh, of living passively in some kind of is what it is, whatever will be, will be existence. No, we are to act. We are to put our faith into practice. St. James even goes so far as to say that a faith that does not result in acts of obedience is, in fact, no faith at all. It's useless. It's dead. Martin Luther put it best in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, did we in our own strength confide, trust? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Now Israel's future, their hope for success in the future rested in God alone. Their confidence was to be in God, not in their own wisdom, not in their own wealth, not in the power and strength of their armed forces. I noted earlier that, that they had become a divided kingdom, that, and that put God's people at even greater risk from their enemies. But instead of trusting in the Lord, the northern kingdom entered an alliance with their pagan neighbors, the Syrians. That was an act of disobedience. 
and it revealed their complete lack of faith in God. So not surprisingly, it ended badly. For at the end of the day, the Assyrians, who, were the, who was the big power in that part of the world, saw this alliance between them and the Syrians as a threat, and he promptly destroyed them both. Didn't end well. But let's apply all this to you and me right now in the here and now. Specifically, I want to mention three areas. First of all, I want you to grow in your confidence this coming year that God will provide for your needs, that God will meet your everyday needs. And how do we demonstrate to God? How do we demonstrate our faith in God that we are trusting him to provide? Well, the same way that God's covenant people have done this since the days of Moses, the lawgiver, through a thing we call tithing, giving the first 10% of your income to God. Now, I mention this first because while all acts of, of obedience, whether it's the things God has told us to do or whether refraining from the things he has told us not to do, all acts of obedience are ultimately acts of faith. They, in, they indeed reveal whether we truly believe God or not. But tithing is unique in this sense, that it is not only a sign of our faith, but it is itself the best way I know of to grow your faith. It's so practical and it's so tangible. Now the key to this all is in the term first fruits, as scripture calls it. Not giving God what is left over after we have covered our other obligations, but recognizing that God and our obedience to God is in fact our first obligation in life. That's where the element of faith comes in. In the largely agrarian economy of biblical days, this really took faith for them to do. Imagine you're a, a farmer or a herdsman and your cow gives birth to a calf. First time. What do you do with the calf? You take it to the temple. You take it to the tabernacle. What if on the way back home you find out, you get home and you find out your cow died? Now you're out two cows, right? Now you're, now you're hard pressed. What if you get home in your field that you've already tied the first tenth of the, the crop off of has been destroyed now by fire, say, or by a hailstorm? You see where I'm going with that. It is God's ordained method of funding his work for the church under the old covenant as well as under the new covenant. It's about learning to live by faith. Negatively, God likens our failure to obey him as stealing. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you, Lord? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the na whole nation of you, bringing the full tithe to the storehouse, that they may be food in my house. And get this, God says, and thereby put me to the test. You realize what God is saying there? He's saying something he never says anywhere else that I can recall. He's saying, I dare you. Just, just go ahead and try it. Just, just see if I won't, I will absolutely prove this to you. That doesn't sound like faith, does it? Well, it is up front, but he says, just do it and I'll prove it to you. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. And he says, I'll rebuke the devourers, the pests and the things that eat away at your fields and your income and so forth. And, and lest some of you maybe want to get all dispensational on me and say, well, that's Old Testament. I had a very dear friend in Florida who used to say that a lot. Well, let's try Philippians chapter 4 where Paul says to the church at Philippi who gave generously to his work, he says to them, 
What you have done is a fragrant offering. And notice how Old Testament and, and the sacrificial this sounds. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. Enough said? Enough said. Secondly, I want you to walk this coming year in great confidence in the gospel. Great confidence in the gospel. Dean Michael's first sermon here at Holy Cross as Dean was one in which he mentioned several things that he loves. And one of them was the gospel. And my heart rejoiced when I heard that. The saving message that God saves sinners, rescuing us from sin's penalty, from sin's power in our everyday life, and ultimately from its very presence. Even our liturgy states that, that what we are about to do in a few moments in receiving the Lord's Supper is itself a proclamation of the good news of the gospel. Well, how does God get this message to the world? I suppose he could have done it a number of ways, maybe some cosmic huge billboards strategically placed throughout the planet that announce the good news. But no, he doesn't do that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. That's what it means to know Christ. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so how does he do this? Next verse. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, earthen vessels. That's us. It's talking about us and our frail existence. Why does he do it that way? Why does he entrust this message to these jars of clay, which is what we are, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us? Now, I point this out <clears throat> because I know that the mere mention of evangelism or sharing one's faith with unbelievers absolutely scares <clears throat> pardon me, scares the living daylights out of, I dare say, most of you. Most Christians feel that way. And you know what? I, I completely understand. But, beloved, this, just like tithing, and every matter of obedience to God ultimately comes down to faith. Not in ourselves, not in our skills, but in this case, the gospel message itself. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians in his first letter to them, that he deliberately avoided waxing eloquent in his, in his preaching when he first came to Corinth because he wanted them to know that the power was not in his skills. It was in the message itself. I love Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, in, in most translations it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But, but there's a sort of a paraphrased version called today's English version been out a long time, that puts it in a positive light, which says, I have complete confidence in the gospel. And that's, what I, that's what I desire for you and for me in the coming year, that we have complete confidence in the, in the gospel, for it is God's power to save all who believe. The power is not in you and me, beloved. It is in the message itself. Now, of course, Paul was a preacher, and he was a teacher, but for the vast majority of Christians, Evangelism is pretty much, it pretty much boils down to something very simple. Something like just pointing others to Jesus. And how do we do that? By telling them what he's done in our life. How he has changed our lives. And we see examples of this all through the New Testament. I'll just mention a few. John chapter 1. Philip sees his friend Nathaniel and says, you know, this guy Jesus from Nazareth, 
I think he's the Messiah. And what does Nathaniel say? Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding? And what does Philip say? Come and see. And he did. Philip just took him to Jesus. They talked. And by the end of the conversation, what does Nathaniel say? You are truly the Son of God. That's evangelism. John chapter 4. Jesus is in Samaria. That's enemy territory. Jews and Samaritans despised one another and had for hundreds of years. When the leaders in the temple wanted to insult Jesus, you know what they called him? A Samaritan. It was about the worst slur you could, you could hear, hurl at someone. By the end of the day, this woman at the well, as we usually refer to her, who had a pretty sordid past, had become a believer in Jesus, though. And not only that, she went back to town and told everyone, you've got to come meet this guy. And many Samaritans, John tells us, from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, her story. She just said, listen, this is what this guy told me. This is what this guy did. So much so that Jesus and the apostles stayed there two days. They put it, they, they had what we would say in our day, a revival meeting. <laughs> and there were all kinds of Samaritans became believers in Christ. John chapter 9. Jesus heals a man blind from birth. And isn't that a great image of what God does in saving us? He removes the blindness, the spiritual blindness from our eyes and shows us what we really are and shows us who he really is. It's a great image. But the religious leaders tried to engage this man in a big theological discussion about who Jesus was and so forth. And finally, I picture in, in exasperation, the man says to them, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, whereas once I was blind, now I can see. That was his story. And that's evangelism. It's just telling your story. This is what God has done in my life. And again, as with all acts of obedience and all God's commands, it's not optional. It's not optional. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. Not you should be, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to you and say what a nice person you are. And how. No, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The other day, how many of you know... Uh, Greg and Laura Gibson. Some of you will know Greg and Laura. Second person, our second service they usually attend. Uh, Greg, Greg is getting up in his years. He has a lot of health problems, but I, I don't know a more joyful Christian. His life, he, is, he is a tremendously joyful man. He was in the hospital this past week, and I went to see him. Or he may have, I'm sorry, it was late last week. And, and there he was in the hospital, hooked up to all these machines and so forth. He was doing pretty good. He's home now. But the nurse comes in. And so he introduces uh, me to the nurse and says, this is, one, this is one of the pastors at the church I go to. And he starts telling her about Holy Cross Church. He loves this church. He invites people all the time. He asked me for brochures that he could hand out about a year or so ago to, to people. And there he invites this nurse to come to Holy Cross Church. Now, if I do that, well, okay, that's kind of what we're supposed to do, right? But here, this layperson in bed with wires and tubes hooked up to him, takes time to invite 
this nurse to come to the Holy Cross. Anybody can do that, beloved. And I would just encourage you to open your eyes to those around you. And God, that God would give you the eyes to see the opportunities you have just sometimes to plant a seed or to invite someone to Holy Cross or to just share your story. It's not optional. It's a matter of faith, of confidence in God that he will use you and me, sinners saved by grace, to bring others out of darkness and into light. And finally, I want you all and me and all of us to have confidence regarding the future. Confidence regarding the future. Isaiah 9, we read earlier, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of this government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Notice from this time and forevermore. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe that? Beloved, there's way too much among Christians and non-Christians hand-wringing, longing for the good old days. I couldn't help but think about some of your old ones, remember all in the family, Archie Bunker. And he had singing, those were the days, right? That kind of thing. Well, that's, that, was, that was an amusing and funny show. But I couldn't help but think, what a sorry way to live your life. Sitting around griping and grousing about the way things are. You know what St. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3? He says this, this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind Reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The imagery he's using is that of an athlete, in particular a runner, who's running a race. He doesn't have time to look around him and see what everybody else is doing and, and this other stuff. He's focused on that finish line, and he's focused on the task at hand. I, I thought about this. What if you knew that, let's say you're going into a competition of some sort of meet or a match or a game and what if somehow miraculously you found out that you were going to win absolutely you, you absolutely are going to win this competition would it affect how you play would it affect your your efforts would you just sit back and coast and say oh well i'm going to win anyway so, no i don't think you would i think i think you would compete with great confidence with a spirit of even reckless abandon would you not well, beloved, read your Bible. From cover to cover, the outcome is not in question. We win. In the words of a great hymn, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Now, our ancient spiritual ancestors, that first and second, third and fourth generation of those who lived after the time of Christ, the early church, they understood this. For the first 250 years, they experienced persecution from the Roman government, the likes of which you and I cannot even begin to imagine, because Rome pretty much tolerated virtually every religion, all except for Christianity, which they had declared to be an illegal superstition. Now, thankfully, to be sure, the persecution was sporadic. It wasn't all the time and it wasn't everywhere, but where it was, it was brutal. It was brutal. It almost always ended in a death sentence either by beheading if you were fortunate enough to be a citizen of Rome or by being burnt alive or used as just uh, uh, sport in the arena for wild animals and gladiators to torture and kill. Polycarp was one of those early apostolic fathers as we call him. He was a, an apostle of St. John himself and he was bishop of the Greek port city of Smyrna which is in what's now a Turkey. And he 
was, uh, was executed for his faith in the year 156. He was something like 86 years of age. Couldn't help but wonder what took him so long. I mean, he couldn't have been that difficult to catch and find. But nevertheless, in God's mercy, he lived to be 86 years old. And he was executed for refusing to worship the emperor. He wouldn't light and burn some incense to honor the emperor. And he wrote an account, a sort of diary, about his arrest and imprisonment. His colleagues finished the book after he was executed. Listen to their account of his death. It's very short and very simple. Polycarp was taken prisoner by Herod when Philip the Tralian was high priest, when Stadius Quadratus was proconsul, and when Jesus Christ is king forever. To whom be glory, honor, majesty, and an everlasting throne from generation to generation. The message of those early believers was clear, and, and others read this and took great heart in it. Rome is not in charge. Caesar and his bureaucrats are not running things. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. But do you know that? And when I say know that, I say, I mean, do you believe that in your heart of hearts? I'm afraid many Christians will affirm it here in church. We will sing, this is my father's world. We'll sing, a mighty fortress is our God here in the friendly confines of Holy Cross. But not always where it counts. Out there, Monday morning in the real world. Let me close with a word from Isaiah chapter 40, what he said to those who felt like, much like what we many times feel. God has abandoned us. God is, we, we, we just, we're hopeless. We're doomed. Doom and gloom. Here's what Isaiah said to them. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, that is those who trust in him, those who walk by faith, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But beloved, you're never going to know and experience that until you walk by faith in obedience to all that you know that God would have you to do. So I'm not going to wish you a happy new year at this point. I'm going to wish you a faithful new year, that you be filled with faith and that you grow in your faith. Let's pray for that end. Father God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Isaiah, and Polycarp, and all who have gone on before us. And Father, you will be faithful to us. Father, will we be faithful to you? And I pray that each of my brothers and sisters here this morning will find their faith encouraged and renewed, and that in the coming year, they will find new and creative ways to express their faith in you by their obedience to you and the things we have talked about this morning and every aspect of our lives. And we pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.